started and then we will go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. So let us pray. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. So, we are all caught up as far as, you know, this This morning was funny. We, we had to catch up a little bit this morning with chapter 2 and 3. We're all caught up, and, and, and if you missed a class, you can listen to it on our website or podcast, however you want to listen. Um, get, get caught up on things. But we are in chapter 3. Great chapter title. How bad a boy are you? Uh, Did y'all like this uh, chapter? Enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty interesting, right? So um, I guess we can just dive in, and we'll try and keep this to about an hour uh, like we're supposed to. So um, how let's just start with the first question there. And, And... I may, I may play around with the ordering of these questions because I think we should on some level because uh, one flows into the other a little bit better. We'll get to it. Um, but American Christianity softens the Bible's teaching on sin. See on page 58, right? So how does revivalism, pietism, and or mysticism feed into this? What do you all think? Sin made us sick, and with ease we can heal ourselves. Ah, that's very interesting, yeah. We can just do it ourselves. Yeah, it's all about do-it-yourself kind of stuff, right? Uh, Any other thoughts on that? They seem to teach that we're only partially sinful. Okay, all right. Yeah, I think that's true. You gonna say something? Yeah, I'm just basically saying the same thing. My answer is that they, they all three deny total depravity. And right. Allow us some hope of saving ourselves. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, all three require some goodness to remain in us so we may uh, make a decision, find comfort in what we do, right? Revivalism, pietism, and, you know, to be able to stand face to face with God without being destroyed, like we talked about last time. So yeah, it just requires there to be some some sort of goodness left in us after the fall into sin. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? No? All right. Just kind of chug along then. Good. All right. So that brings us to the thought of, uh, or the teaching, um, the teaching of original sin. And that's the sin we have through Adam, right? So why is that an important doctrine? What makes it so important? What do you think? It's a sin we didn't commit ourselves. It's a sin we didn't commit ourselves. Can you kind of play that out a little bit? It's nothing we did. We are born with it. Okay, so it's what we're born with. Um, why, why is that important? I mean... What difference does it make? You have one from day one. You have I mean, sin. You, you are a sinner. Nothing you can do about it. 
Right. I mean, it, it, in a very basic sense, it tells us uh, who we are by ourselves apart from God, right? Um, any other thoughts on that? I mean, why is that so important? How we know who we are apart from God. What's so important about that? In this context, I always think about Paul's argument through chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Romans, in which when, in order to arrive at a place where Christ can save us by his own work, we have to begin at a place where we're damned apart from, from any hope of having gotten it right. Right. So we have to begin with an inherited guilt in order that, that we didn't necessarily earn. Of course, we earned it ourselves by sinning into it later. <laughs> but we have the guilt in Adam so that we can have the second Adam, Christ, who gives us a righteousness that is also foreign to us. Do you want to teach this class? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, you're good. You're right. You're right. No, you're right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. That, that uh, if, if, if you don't understand... Uh, that you are inherently sinful from the beginning, you will never begin to understand the reason that Christ had to die, right? Uh, if you don't understand sin properly, that it's, it's, it's like what Pastor Wolfmuller says, you know, you misdiagnose the problem. It's like the guy who has a broken leg, but he's diagnosed with cancer, right? You're giving him chemotherapy when he should get a cast, and... Um, resetting the bone when it's broken, right? You're not treating the real issue. You're not actually getting to the heart of the problem if you don't understand uh, sin properly, according to Scripture. Yeah? Any thoughts on that? Any questions? We're going to get into it, so if you want, want to hold them for later, that's fine too. All right? um, so I'm, I'm going to skip to... Number four, because number three, it's kind of its own separate thing, but I think uh, number four really kind of flows out of number two. So our sinful nature comes first, then our sinful actions. What difference does that make? So we understand, so in order to understand uh, the doctrine of original sin, uh, we have to get, get it right. In fact, it requires us to understand that our sinful nature comes first then our sinful actions. So what does it matter, though? What does it matter? What happens when you flip the two? I guess I'll ask that question. Otherwise, our actions would cause our nature. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, either way, you're, either way, you're damned, right? I mean, it's one of those things where either way... I mean, because no one is perfect, and we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. But when we understand that, uh, you know, the chicken and the egg question yeah, that he talks about, saying, right? Chicken and the egg. Yeah, the chicken and the egg. There is an answer to it for us, though, in Scripture. Like that, um, you know, which comes first, our sinful nature or our sinful acts? So many theologies, and this is on page 61 there, right? Many theologies, including many... Uh, in American Christianity, teach that we become sinners when we sin. Sinful actions come first, and when we sin, we become sinners. But the scriptures teach the opposite, right? A bad tree produces bad fruit, right? Our sinful nature comes first, and then the fruit of actual sins. 
Um, we sin because we are sinners, right? And we got to get that right. Um, so what happens when we flip it on its head, though? Uh, yeah, you said like it just becomes about what we do. But what else? What else does it do? This might be a stretch, but... Go for it. If we are by nature sinful, and when God sees us, he sees something repulsive, mm. then, the, then the disagreement between us and God is not just one of our demeanor or our behavior, it's a difference of our nature. He hates us as we are sinners. However, in Christ, he has shown his love right. to people who were dead in trespasses and sins and couldn't do anything to deserve it. Mm -hmm. And so if, if we understand fully the magnitude of our own messed up in this, <laughs> then we're in a better position to understand the magnitude of God's grace toward us in reconciling not his friends, not some slightly depraved people, but his enemies to himself through the cross. Right, yeah. Children of wrath, right? Yeah, yeah so, yeah, to, I guess, yeah, the, the, our inherited nature, and I like the way you put that, our inherited nature is sin. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting, our, uh, not, to, not to complicate things, but you know, since, since you're making that distinction about nature, um, the Book of Concord actually talks, we, talks about this. I think we touched on it briefly when we had our uh, class on the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, but um, at one point in time, there had to be in the Lutheran Church a correction of people's understanding about sin and how we are born with it and things like that, that at some point in time, someone actually said that the substance of man is sin now. And we had to say, no, that's not the case. Substantively, we are not sin. Our nature at one point in time was perfect and spotless and uncorrupted. But we talk about sin as a corruption of that human nature that was made in the likeness of God. Right, that our being made in the image of God is now so distorted, it doesn't even look anything like what he first meant for it to be, right? So, you know, we should talk very strongly about sin because that's how Scripture talks, but let's not jump the gun or go further than what Scripture says about how sinful we really are. Otherwise, we become so corrupt we can't even be redeemed, Right? Mm -hmm. We can't, we can't go that far uh, because, because if we are so corrupt that our very substance is sin, uh, you know, God doesn't die for things that can't be redeemed. Yeah. See what I mean? Okay. I think that's the part I feel where I was stretching. Okay. It's, it's hard to articulate exactly mm -hmm. what our status is if we are totally depraved and dead. Yeah. And yet some, <laughs> something there is capable of redemption. Right. I mean, it's hard to put my finger on. Yeah. Well, yeah. Think about it. Think about it in terms of like, uh, and, and you know, every analogy or comparison falls apart at some point in time. Nothing is perfect in terms of comparison. But if you think of like a skeleton, right, or a pile of bones, you could assemble it to where it kind of looks like a person. But until you put the flesh and blood and the skin and the organs and everything back onto it, does it really look like a human being again? You see what I mean? Uh, and and I, I guess that's why Scripture even uses that, that illustration 
in Ezekiel with the Valley of Dry Bones, right? Uh, that he takes, he, he breathes life into them, right? And he brings them back from, from the dead beyond redemption, it seems, but he doesn't, right? Um, so it's one of those things where, yeah, we got to be careful on how far we go and what language we use because language is important and it comes down to our nature, not our substance. Those are philosophical terms we're not going to go into right now. But um, yeah, so speak strongly about it because scripture does. But let's not go too far and misunderstand the point. Okay? Am I making sense or am I going too far? Yes, that's actually really helpful. You following along? Okay, good. All right. So, um, so then, yeah, the difference between, yeah, difference between which comes first, sinful nature, sinful actions, we've pretty much covered that pretty well, I think, unless somebody has further questions, do we have any questions? I want to make sure I don't steamroll anybody here. Nope. Nope. Pretty clear? Okay. All right, then. Well, then let's go back to number three, okay? Sin, death, and the devil are always together. We see that on page 60. Uh, what does that mean, that these three are always together? Well, if, if we had followed the devil, like Adam and Eve, if God hadn't come along and saved them, mm -hmm. okay. then their death would be permanent. They'd go to hell instead of heaven. Yeah, okay. Yeah, these, thing, these three are connected inherently, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, that's why... God banished Adam and Eve from the garden mm -hmm. because he said, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in their depravity, in their sin, mm -hmm. you know, we got to kick them out because otherwise then they would just live forever. <laughs> it sounds kind of funny. They'd live forever dead. That kind of sounds weird, right? But he did that for our own sakes. And, and Paul talks about it that, that in, in chapter 8 of Romans, where he says, you know, he subjected them to futility, not permanently, but so that there would be an end to that futility of, you know, sin and death. There would be an end to the cycle at some point. Um, so when we say sin, death, and the devil are always together, um, do we have any other ideas about that? Like why these three are always connected? What do y'all have? Well, I wrote down devil, the initiator, sin, the act, death, the result. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What kind of death? Let me ask that one too. Is it merely physical or merely, merely spiritual? It's physical and spiritual. Yeah. We Lutherans don't like false dichotomies. We usually say, why not both, right? Uh, we usually say, you know, it's a both and, not an either or statement, right? That sin leads to physical death and also can lead to spiritual death without repentance and forgiveness, right? Without the grace of God, sin will lead to spiritual death, right? Um, and the devil is always trying to exploit this connection, so you would be deceived and die eternally, right? I mean, he's not just happy with your physical death. He wants you gone forever, right? He wants you with him forever, right? Um, any thoughts about this? I mean, uh, is it being too strong, too weak? Yeah, I think. 
Or just thoughts in general? The thief on the cross. Okay. Where he is today, uh -huh. he's in heaven. Uh huh. Right. Way back when he was in heaven. Way back when he was in heaven. How do you. Ever his teacher of this. The two mates, the two prisoners uh -huh. were talking, uh -huh. and Christ said to the thief, uh -huh. Today uh -huh. you will be in heaven. Yeah, in paradise. Yeah. Uh huh. So, it's not too late. It's not too late. Yeah, you're right. Is that what you mean? It's not yeah. too late? Okay. Yeah, you're right. It's not too late as long as you're here, right? Um, as long as you're still alive to, physically alive to repent, right? Mm -hmm. To be breathed into by the Holy Spirit, to have faith, and you know, by the word of Christ. Um, yeah. So... I guess it's actually interesting. We, we, we talk this way as Lutherans and as, you know, those who up, uphold the sacraments and things like that as efficacious, effective, uh, because of the word of God, right? That sin, death, and the devil are always together. Sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to death. There's no life that can be had in sin, right? Which is another reason why, you know, we would uh, be proponents of baptizing babies, right? Now, I don't know how you feel about this, Jake. I know you might be of a different persuasion. I don't know. And that's okay. We're just all kind of, I'm just kind of trying to explain myself here that we, we would say, you know, there are some who might simply just say, well, Babies aren't sinful because they can't commit sin, right? They might have a misunderstanding about what actually brings about sin, like we talked about before, where our sinful actions make us sinners. And they say, well, babies can't commit sin. And then we would say, well, well, at least one of my things is that if somebody came to me with that and said, well, a baby can't actively sin, so why do they need baptism if that's what, you know, would save them? And my point is, can a baby die? Can a baby die? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the wages of sin is death, right? Sin always leads to death, and the consequence for sin is death. Whether uh, acted out or just inherited, right? We all die, uh, you know, uh, physically, this side of glory, right? Um, so the point is to be given not obtain for ourselves, but be given the eternal life promised by God uh, in the gospel. And that is an actual acting out of the gospel in the word and the water of holy baptism, right? So that's one thing that I would say, you know, that sin always leads to death. And the promise that is attached to holy baptism is eternal life. Uh, that... Um, 
First Peter three twenty one. It's one of those proof texts we got the Sedes Doctrinae for baptism, where Peter's talking about um, how uh, God saved Noah and his entire family, eight souls and all, in the ark through the water. Right, that he drowned all of the world in the water, but he delivered the eight people in the ark for the sake of his promise to flood the earth. Right. And that in that, Peter also says uh, that this is a type, right, of baptism, which now saves you, not as a washing of uh, dirt from the body, but as a promise of a clean conscience in God's sight. This is something we hold on to, right, that we say, well, because babies can die, we are going to baptize them. Uh, but, but like... It's all also being brought to the font by their parents and things like that. We're not going to get into everything about baptism right now, but it's one of the reasons why um, me and Amelia, we're, we're uh, planning on, um, after, our, after our son is born, sometime, and she told me, she's like, it could be between like three and five weeks that he's coming. I was like, oh, that's so soon. But... Um, what, what we're probably going to do, because with Charlotte, we waited like two weeks. And the whole time we were waiting, um, we, were, we were both a little uncomfortable not having her baptized. Because <laughs> we're just like, we want her to have this promise. And if something happens, we want you know there to be assurance and comfort in these things that come with baptism. Not just for her, but for us as well. So when this boy comes, we're probably going to be like, all right, everybody, you're on call. As soon as we get out of the hospital, we're going straight to the church, and y'all can meet us there. We're going to have a baptism. We're going to have a baptism. And then someone this morning said, said well, why don't I just baptize her in the hospital? And I said, you can. I can. I could. Um, I could, yeah. I mean, if there's a... If there, but like the thing that I want to do is that I want to make sure that people in the church, it's good for them to see a baptism. Right. I want to give people opportunity to witness these things, to be part of that, you know, uh, part of that event in a way that, that, you know, helps them remember their baptism and the promise that is delivered to them through those waters with the word. Right. So that's why I was like, I kind of had to make a little bit of a compromise there with Amelia. She's like, I just want it done. And I was like, yeah, well, it's good to have it in the church. So let's just see if we can be like, you're on call. If you can make it, that's great. If not, then we'll have a recognition of a baptism later on. Uh, but if you can make it, great. If not, then that's all right. Um, but yeah, so that's all going along to say that baptism also delivers from sin, death, and the power of the devil, not because of the work done by the pastor or by you know whoever's doing the baptizing, if it's an emergency, right, or something like that, but it is that it is the promise, the word attached to the water that does all these things, right? That, that, that delivers on these things, okay? You're probably thinking, Pastor, how do you go on these tangents and make these connections? It's probably pretty crazy. Well, you pay me to think about these things, so I think about them, right? So that's how I can do it. Right. Any thoughts on these things? Comments? Questions? No? All right, well, I just want to like fly through all these things. If y'all do have something, just shout them out at me. Um, but this might take, yeah, go ahead. What about, this is another tangent. Playing, uh, 
death. <laughs> How do you define death? Oh, interesting. So what do you mean by, like, what's the root of the question there? Like, what do you get? My thought is everybody has eternal life. It's just a matter what you decide, where you're going to spend it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. So either eternal the people, life. The people in hell, you say they're dead. They're still down there alive. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good question. What is hell, right? What is hell? Um, the air. Oh, right, which is eternal torment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like Jesus says at the uh, you know at the end of certain parables, he'll say when they're when people are shut out from the wedding feast, there will be there will be in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Um, yeah. So how God. can you weep and gnash of teeth if you're dead? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, then I wouldn't say that hell is eternal death. In that there's no life to be had. I mean, yeah, I guess it is eternal existence, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, I guess It's eternal existence in eternal torment and punishment, right? Um, And we can go on about that because there's, there's also things attached to that where it's like the idea of the weeping and gnashing of teeth are tied to the understanding of, um, not just like regret or something like that, but it's anger and wrath that they're basically inflicting on themselves. You see what I mean by that? That when you grind your teeth against somebody, you're just so angry at them. You're so angry at God being in hell that you wind up in some sense being your own tormentor, right? Um, It's one of those things that's kind of a fascinating thought experiment about what exactly is hell what exactly is eternal uh, damnation and punishment and things like that? But we're not talking about that right now. So, but it's it's a good question. And what I thought you were going to go with that is like you know issues of being like brain dead or whatever, and whether that's death oh, or whatever. No. It's just like let's not open that can of worms right now. <laughs> um, which, for the record, being brain dead is not death. Okay, uh, people who want to actively kill somebody because they're just brain dead, it doesn't. That's, that's not, just because you can no longer think for yourself, but your heart is still beating, doesn't mean that you're actually dead. You see what I mean? Life is not equated to cognitive ability. See what I mean? Yeah, coma is a weird thing. Yeah, yeah. We don't hasten death in that instance, but, uh, you know, you can refuse treatment and all that stuff like that. We'll get into it if we ever have a class on ethics. Um, it's a fascinating topic too, because sometimes there's not a clear cut answer. Most of the time there's not. Anyways, so let's move on to number five, because we might spend a little bit of time talking about this actually. Um, the three functions of the law, let me just write these out here actually, three functions uh, of the law. And and, and I think he does say, where does he begin that? He says, you know, the the three uses or functions. Really, uses, I I, I would really shy away from that term use because then it makes it sound like we have some say in how the law is being applied. Okay, and I'll get to that. I'll get to that. So the three functions are curb, mirror, and guide. According to how he lays them out and, and, and you know Jake I know that you're from 
more of a reformed background, right, sort of thing. So, so how would you define the three? Because I think don't reform put them differently or in a different order. Mm. Do you know about these from that perspective? I don't think we use the term functions of the law. Okay, so such. how would you phrase that then? Um, the, the reform folks I've been in contact with have mm -hmm. understood the law as belonging to a time of God's dispensations toward humans. Oh, interesting. So it okay. becomes a... All right, so there, there are two covenants, mm -hmm. one of works, which Adam broke, and okay. became, became a member of the covenant of grace, and the covenant of grace was administered for a while through the law, mm. which yep. points to Christ who fulfills it. Interesting. And then the law now has some uses, but they are... Okay, so where I, where I think a Lutheran might use the law of Moses to make prescriptions for society, a Calvinist would be hesitant to do that. Um, they would say that those laws were to govern an ancient nation hmm. whose existence is now known through the people of God's faith. And okay. that those laws no longer have direct application. So we don't sacrifice things um, and we're not bound to certain ceremonies. Gotcha. And from there, we would divide the law into a moral, a civil, and a ceremonial mm -hmm. group, yeah. grouping. Yeah, I think we would we would pretty much make it a three. Yeah, I guess a moral, civil, ceremonial. So the, I guess it depends on who you talk to about this and their philosophy behind their understanding of the law. But anyways, you're going to say? Just that the moral aspects of the Old Testament law are still binding upon Christians because mm -hmm. they're reiterated in the New Testament and not because they're in the Old. From, right. from the reform perspective. Interesting. Whereas right. the civil and ceremonial, we don't structure our government based on the Old Testament structure of government with a king or, or a nation of Levitical priests or anything. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Because that's civil, and we also don't observe the ceremonies of the Old Testament feasts, etc., because that's ceremonial. Mm -hmm. So those are the three that I'm familiar with. Interesting. I'm All right. sure their functions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so those are, those are, I guess, three different views, or, you know, three... I guess three different types of the law, I guess you yeah. could say. Uh, moral, civil, ceremonial. Um, I've seen it in like more of a Venn diagram where it's like, you know, there's the, mor there's the moral and the ceremonial. And then where they overlap is where, like, you know, you see the Venn diagram. And yeah, I got this from a Lutheran satire <laughs> video. <laughs> if y'all know that, which is great. Uh, where it's like, you know, uh, if you know where that is, you should look up Lutheran satire. It's actually pretty funny because... It's this this one video where he's basically saying, you know, Horace ruins the internet or whatever, and and, and or he reads breaks he breaks the internet. That's right. And so he brings up saying like, you know, oh, you Christians, you you talk about believing in the Bible, but the Bible says don't eat, you know, um, uh, don't eat pork or shellfish. Yet you'll go and eat bacon wrapped shrimp and things like that. <laughs> then if you do that, then you have nothing to say about homosexuality because it also condemns that as well and so he says well okay let me just talk to you about this that there's two sides you know there's the moral law and then there's the ceremonial law and you know depending on who you're talking to because you can have just different systematics about this you know Calvinists have to have their own way of explaining things and Lutherans do too but we would say very generally the moral and ceremonial that moral you'd say like you know the Ten Commandments right that's still binding the ceremonial is like the levitical codes of um eating you know, yeah dietary law um the sacrificial laws and things like that and 
these were done in a way that would that were there to proclaim, like you said, they were to foreshadow, you know, the grace that would be shown in Christ. That atonement was made sacrificially, um, you know, every day on uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where the people's sins would be laid on the hand, uh, laid on the head of the scapegoat, and then there would be the the sacrificial lamb, and the blood would be sprinkled on the Holy of Holies and things like that. But that was all done to proclaim that those people, the people of Israel, were the people of the promise that followed the one true God. And it was a proclamation to the nations that said, we are the ones who are actually uh, worshiping rightly the one true God. And I love how he says it in the video. He says, to, uh, to try to uphold the Levitical code now, with all the dietary things, with all the sacrificial things, it's like putting up a poster for a concert that happened three weeks ago, right? It doesn't make any sense because it was proclaiming what was to come. And now that Christ has already come, you don't need to do this anymore, right? It's not binding on you as a Christian anymore. But wherever this overlaps with the moral law, we should observe, which would include homosexuality, which would include, um, you know... Uh, I guess, actual punishment for certain sins, maybe not necessarily the prescribed punishment for stealing or for uh, <laughs> fornication or whatever like that, right? So it's, it's not necessarily the same punishment, but that it is a sin. It is a breaking of the law. Does that make sense? It's a very simplified way of viewing it, and you can go into a civil understanding of it as well, but I mean, we're just going to kind of try and keep it simple here. So those are the different, I, I, I would say, types of law on a very basic level, but now we're getting into, so if we are Christians and we still adhere to the Ten Commandments, right, we may understand, we would understand the, um, and depending on how you number it, right, uh, we, we would understand the uh, third commandment of you should remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We would understand that in a different sense. We were not including the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, but we are now saying that to do these things, to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, is to just go to church and hear the word of God and receive his gifts that he gives to you through the word and the sacraments. Right. Um, so if we understand the law in this way, then there are three functions of the law, as we would prescribe them. To curb, uh, to curb sin on a civil level, to mirror and show us our sin on a spiritual theological level, and then to guide us once we are you know, redeemed by Christ uh, through faith. Uh, now we can see the law as a guide of how to live a righteous life. So, okay, so, can I erase this now? I'm just, I don't want to overly confuse things. So if we, if we say that the law that we follow now is fully encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, let's just stay very simple there. The Ten Commandments have three functions. Uh, and functions are better than uses, like I said, because if you say uses, then somebody might get the idea, in fact, people have gotten the idea, that... Like a pastor can get up there and I can preach the law. Oh, but don't worry, I'm only preaching it in a way to guide people. Well, that's great if you're trying to do that, but what happens to the person who hears it and they think he's trying to show me that I'm not doing what I got to do, 
I mean, you cannot just pick one of these things and say, no, 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 guys, I'm only preaching the law in a curb sense, not a mirror sense. You're like, yeah, well, I took it in that way. And that, right? that way of preaching misses that the law is the word of God, which is living and active. That's right, yeah. The law, the word of God accomplishes what it sets out to do, and you cannot be the manipulator of the word according to your whims, right? Um, that's putting it pretty bluntly, so there's, there's that. But I don't really like this question, <laughs> to be very honest with you, the one, <laughs> the one from here, you know, um, where it's like, which three functions of the law is most compelling to you? You know, it's like, it's what we just got off of in the last chapter about, you know, what does this passage mean to you? as opposed to what is God revealing about himself, right? So let me just ask the question, because maybe it could reveal some things, right? Which one of these is most compelling to you? Just let it, for the sake of discussion. What do y'all think? What's most compelling of these three? I'm more of the opinion that where I am dictates which one I need the most. Interesting, all right. Can you flesh that out a little bit more? Well, there are times when I need to hear the guide more than I need to hear the mirror. Or there might be times when I need to hear the curb more than I need to hear the guide. Okay. So they might stand out more in different periods of life. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. It's funny, I asked that question this morning and someone was like, uh, guide, and someone said, curb, and then someone just said mirror. I was like, okay, good, we got all three. Fine, we'll just move on now. You know, uh, no, one in, no one went into why. They're just like, you know, going one, one down the list. Um, yeah, I think it would depend on where you are. Um, and somebody asked this morning as well, which is a good question. They said, what's the difference between curb and guide? Right? Do y'all know the difference between the curb and the guide function? Seems like the curb would deflect us, block us from doing something, and the guide would lead us into doing things actively. Yeah, so that's, that's a guess. And <laughs> and also keep us from doing things, right? I, what I told them, and and um, I'm open to correction, although I don't think I'm really wrong on this. That curb curb is for both believers and non-believers, right? We have general laws against stealing. Uh, well, we used to have laws against adultery. But you know, what are you gonna do? Um, besides keep, besides keep saying that it's wrong, um, we have laws against stealing. We have laws against murder. Right. Therefore, we strongly encourage people not to covet. Right. That sort of thing. Um, we have we have certain laws in the civil realm on you know that flow out of the Ten Commandments. Right. And that's what a curb is. You know, we have. Um, it's for Christians and non-Christians alike. Guide, though, is only for believers. That the law cannot be a guide in its purest sense for people who are not Christians. And the reason why I say that, before you get upset with me, um, because I've, I've had people push back against me on that, which is fine, but the thing is, is that it, it's... Both of these are, evoked, are evoking a different kind of fear. And I've talked about this before. I, don't, I can never remember where I've talked about this before because I talked about it a lot recently, I guess. But there's a difference between servile fear and filial fear, right? That 
servile fear is the fear of a slave, a fear of punishment. That's more of the curb aspect of the law. Guide is more of a filial fear, which is a fear that a son has for their father. Right? That it's a good, healthy thing for a son to be uh, respectful of his father, to desire the things that his father does um, when it comes to good, good things. Does that make sense? That um, um, there are two different kind of, uh, it's, it's a fear of punishment versus the, you know, the fear and respect and desire to do the right thing. And I think it's also an extension that Jake was saying that, you know, that curb is something that keeps us from doing things. Guide is a thing that leads us into doing good things or not doing bad things, you know, depending on how you view it. Uh, one, one is a task. The other is a joy. Okay? I also put it that way as well. Um, I think, personally, to me, what's most compelling to me <laughs> is probably the mirror aspect of things. Because um, even when you get into the guide, into the realm of the law being a guide for you now as a Christian, you're not going to be perfect at it. right? You're not going to fulfill it Perfectly, so therefore it naturally kind of leads back to a mirror aspect, right? That um, even though I could get up in the pulpit or say to somebody, you know, hey, you know what, just pray about it. That's a good thing, right? For us Christians to pray about it. And that is a good thing to guide people into. Pray to God that things would go well, that his will would be done. But then when someone doesn't do that, all, all of a sudden that prescription, that law, goes from being a guide to a mirror and something that you need to be, you know, repentant of and say, okay, now I will do these things, right? So it's, it's the theological, what is it, what is, what does Pastor Wolfmuller say? He says, um, uh, the mirror is the theological use of the law and it is the chief and most important function of the law. Um, cause, on some level, curb and guide are also, uh, they have their feet in, well, they all have their, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, not going to make that distinction. I was going to say civil versus, you know, spiritual or whatever. Um, but I might quibble with Wolfmuller a little bit on that to say that, you know, it's the theological use. They're all theological uses to be had in these things. Um, so we'll just, just not. Um, we'll just leave that alone. Any any questions? I guess I should just go there. Any questions about this so far? Well, my answer was curb because I think that's the most neglected nowadays. Interesting. And uh, yeah, the the government is yeah. And then my boss is on jury duty, so when he comes back, yeah, I didn't get picked. So everybody in the hallway's got to you know tell about their jury duties and. <laughs> 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 and so one guy was saying, yeah, we had, a, I was on a jury one time and uh, the guy and his brother were arguing over a uh, dump truck. He wanted to use it one time and, uh, well, you got to pay me half and they got irritated. So he uh, pumps seven rounds into his back and he goes, yeah, but the court said it wasn't premeditated murder. So we can only charge him with murder. So he got off in five years and I'm thinking... Whoa. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> what is that? That's yeah. ridiculous. And now, and you're also seeing 
cities, uh, you know, where the the district attorneys are not prosecuting yeah. certain crimes I mean, and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's where we're at today. Yeah, it's a degradation of of yeah the the established order that. Um, not not to open up too much stuff, but that's like you know the issue of the three estates. The um, the, the three estates uh, are you know the church depend depending on which one you place first, the church, the family, and uh, the state. Right, that that um, the state is given by God so that we would be we would have peaceable lives. And now the state is kind of cracking down on the other two estates of mm -hmm. church and family, mm -hmm. right? So it's being tyrannical and there needs to be a balance back in the other direction. Uh, because as we also, as Luther says in his large catechism, that the authority of the state flows out of the fourth commandment to honor your father and your mother. That the father and the mother have the ultimate authority in the household and that, and they, from their authority comes the authority of the state, you know, like with the child who is disobedient and acts unlawfully, then they get punished by the state because the father is there, you know, it's part of the whole flowing out of authority and things like that. Again, that's not the point of what we're talking about right now. It's just an interesting thought. Yeah, curb is definitely neglected. The law in general is just generally neglected these days, I think, on a lot of counts. Um, all right, now let's, the second time, let's just keep on going yeah. here. No, it's good. I love this discussion. I, I could go on forever about it. But um, for number six, question number six, the discussion of free will, page 66 and following, right? The discussion of free will is critical to our understanding of our relationship to God. Now, do we have free will or not? Just let that sit for a minute. Uh, I had my answer already before you read the question. What's your answer? Yes. We have free will? Free will to repent. Free will to forgive. <laughs> free will to ask. Free will to believe. Mm, I'm going to push back against you on, um, on, on those because what does he say about, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's kind of a trick question, right? Do we have free will or not? It's, it's too basic. It's too simple. There's, there's more to it than that, right? That what he was saying was there was that uh, debate between Luther and Erasmus, right? Way back in Luther's time. That Erasmus was a humanist and he had a different understanding of things, right? It's on page 66, mm -hmm. right? No, six, wait. 65. It's on page 65, where um, Erasmus used the argument that um, the command to do something implies the ability to accomplish it. The argument says that because there is, is the law, there must be the freedom and power to keep the law. And he said, uh, the law of God proves our goodness, or at least our ability to do good. And Luther simply said, you know, he says, Luther's response was, I'm simplifying, you should read what the Bible says about the law. That through the, through, through the law comes knowledge of sin, and therefore you should understand what it means for us to be able to keep the law. That um, 
not to overcomplicate things, but when we talk about free will, we do have free will, okay? but only in a certain sense. Okay, We have free will to do the things, like he says, that are below us. I have free will to decide whether or not I'm going to take um, lower crab apple and then to milum and everything like that to get home. Right? I have free will to decide whether I'm going to go and go take 16 down to Travis or go to Main Street or whatever and take whatever way I need to get home. That's my free will. I can decide how I'm getting home tonight. Um, I can decide, you know, um, if and how much I'm going to give to a charity or whatever. I can decide. <laughs> I can decide whether or not I'm going to brush my teeth or just chew a piece of gum. Right? That's my free will to choose those things. What I am not free to do is I'm not free to do like what revivalism says that I'm free to do. I'm not free to make a decision to believe in Jesus Christ. Right? Now, I would agree with you, like we're free to well, I we're free to believe, right? But we're not free to choose what we believe. Does that make sense? That the Holy Spirit works through the word. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of the word of Christ, the word of God. That when we hear the word, the spirit is active, the spirit is moving, and the spirit is the one that creates life. We are free regarding the things that are on a horizontal civil level. I'm free to decide that while I'm teaching, I can emphasize my point by pounding on the podium. Right? That's my free choice. Um, but I'm not free to say that I have all the say in whether I believe in God, whether I believe in what Jesus Christ has done for me. That is all the work of God. Does that make sense? I disagree. You disagree. <laughs> How can you disagree? I'm just playing. Well, there's a lot of churches around here. If you wouldn't, if you can't decide which one you want to believe, you would, you wouldn't even belong to any church if you wanted it. Or you could, you could belong to this church. You could belong to one down the street. You could belong. It's yeah, your well, choice. Or what to believe. Well, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, you can you can decide which church you want to go to. But the thing is, is that. I mean, we would also agree that not everybody in a church is a Christian, you know, that there are unbelievers even in the church. Only God knows yeah. who they are. Right. Only God knows who they are. We can't point, point, point them out because of what they're wearing or whatever. Um, but the thing is, is that when it comes to, what does he say? He says, we sinners have no freedom regarding the things above us, the things of God. Uh, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right, on page 66, that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Now, what, what I'm saying is that apart from God, right, apart from the gift of faith that God bestows to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, right, apart from those things, we cannot believe. Would you agree with that statement? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's in the catechism, right? Um, the and not not that the catechism is just right because it's the catechism, but because it talks about what Scripture talks about. That you know, in the third article of the creed, the explanation that I I, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord or come to Him. Remember that. 
So when you say that... It's not a come to him. It's him coming to you. That's exactly right. And that's what that's talking about. It's not a matter of... This is a stark contrast between belief and unbelief. Right? It's a stark contrast between a Christian and and, and someone who's not a Christian. Um, If you're not a Christian, right, there's no way that you can become a Christian by your own will. That's what he's saying. Right? That's what scripture says. Does that make sense? That if you're an unbeliever, if you're a pagan, right? Uh, or if you're a so-called atheist, right? Even atheists believe in things, believe it or not. Um, you cannot, by your own will or strength, believe in Jesus Christ or come to him apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one, is the one who delivers the faith to you and does exactly what God says about, you know, replacing your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. God is the one that does that. Now, you can be a Christian and believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior because of that gift of faith and decide, I don't want to go to resurrection. I want to go to, like, the Wells Church or I want to go to the Presbyterian Church or whatever. And then there may be different different you know, reasons for that. But even those in the Presbyterian church can also be Christians, right? Even those in the Methodist church can be Christians. Like, there are Christians in these churches, right? That's not what we're not saying there are not, because we're not sectarian, right? We're not saying that if you're not a Lutheran, you're not saved, right? What we are saying is that the stark contrast between belief and unbelief uh, is important because if we are unbelievers... We have no free will but to sin. Right? We have no free will but to reject God. You see what I mean by that? I'm trying to be as simple as possible, but when you're talking about the human will, it gets a little complicated. You see what I mean? Well, it's... Okay, so Jesus is okay. at the door knocking. Right. Okay. You ask him to come in. Okay. Is that a work? No, because why would you, I think who said it here, it's like, why would you open the door for a stranger, right? How would you know it's the voice of Jesus unless the Holy Spirit was telling, was was like helping you to trust or enabling you to trust, giving you the faith to trust that it is Jesus who's actually knocking. You see what I mean? That parable always reminds me of the story of Jesus and Lazarus, where the guy inside the tomb is dead and stinking. Mm-hmm. Three days gone, mm-hmm. and Christ hollers into the tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could say that, yeah, Lazarus did something. He stepped out. <laughs> but that's after Christ's word come forth, has reached him and brought him to life. That's right. And then, sure, he walks through the door, I guess, or the, you know, whatever is on the front of a tomb. Right. But it's because of what Christ has done for him that he's alive. That's exactly that. right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That 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 Christ is Christ is the the doer of the work that is the initiator of what gets us started. Like all our good works, and that's that, I'm not trying to get too far off the the point here, but and what you're getting at, James. But it's like the good works that we do are not the works that we do by ourselves, but that. God is working in and through us as Christians. We can't be Christians apart from Christ, 
You know, Paul says, you cannot say that Jesus Christ is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. And that's really just, that's really the, 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 the main point here, is that sinners have no freedom regarding the things that belong to God, which is salvation, right? That we cannot say, I decide that I am saved by myself. I, I, you don't believe me, but I believe. I am saying that because of what I'm saying right now, I am saved. And then you say, well, what about Jesus? Like, yeah, sure, Jesus and whatever, but I'm the one who does these things, right? That's the main point, is that, um, what does he say? He says, like, um, when, he, when on page 67, he says, you know, that question, have you invited Jesus into your heart? Um, have you received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you dedicated your life to Christ? It's like all of these questions have the same premise that the unbeliever has the ability to choose Jesus. When scripture clearly says, you know, in second in 1 Corinthians 2:14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That the Holy Spirit must first give you the ability to believe these things. So I think that you would agree with that uh, because of what you said, you know, is, is that a work? Is, you know, it's, it's all what God does for you. And that's the point. That in terms of salvation, God is the one doing that work, right? You still disagree on some level? Well. <laughs> and see, that's, these are all very fine points, but it's always interesting. This is all, you know, a thing that's important with this book is that, you know, Pastor Wolfmiller is not attacking any specific denomination or whatever. He's attacking the doctrines and ideas that have, it, that, that influence anybody who is an American Christian, no matter what denomination you are. Because I use this example this morning that, you know, there, there are some people in any congregation, um, you know, like let's, like ours, we live stream our service, right? But there are some people who, you know, that we have that can't watch because they don't have computers, they don't have smartphones, they don't have tablets. So they go, and if they can watch something, they watch something on TV, which is usually something that's very steeped in these ideas that we're talking about in this book, like Joel Osteen or John Hagee or Charles Stanley, usually have more Baptist persuasion when they'll talk about free will in a very different way than what scripture does. So the best thing for us to do is to go to Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 2.14, Romans 8, um, you know, and, and, and others, where we say, well, what does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about free will? What does the Bible say about these things? Um, because we're not immune from persuasion into the wrong kinds of doctrine. You see what I mean? So when we talk about free will, we have to be careful on what, what we mean by that and, you know, how we talk about it. Because, um, yeah. yeah. Any, any, any thoughts on that? Can I clarify anything for y'all on that point? Or is it pretty clear? Or do y'all just need to sit with it for a while? Uh, we lived overseas for a long time yeah. in countries that weren't necessarily Christian, uh -huh. but there were some countries where there were missionaries. Right. There, there wasn't a Missouri Synod church. Right. So 
You might go to the Navy Chapel or sure. the Baptist Church or whatever. Right. Right. Wherever you're preaching the word. Right. Because I wanted the kids, or we wanted the kids, to grow up in a Christian home. Right. And sometimes you have to do that. Like I remember there's there's stories of the um the first Lutherans that came to America, you know, the Lutherans are very late in the game in sending missionaries to America from Germany and things like that. Mm-hmm. So what Lutheran, what what good faithful German Lutherans would do uh, back in the pioneer days is that if they wanted um, their child baptized, they would go to a Reformed or a Calvinist church who would still agree to baptize infants for different reasons, right? It was a different kind of doctrine of a covenant theology more so than 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 more of what we would understand it to be as. But we saw it as, you know, hey, the Lutherans were like, this is a pastor. He has a rightly ordered call. He is ordained. And he can uh, baptize his child. Whether he agrees with what we believe about it or not, that's still a true baptism because it's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So sometimes you have to do those things and go to certain churches just to hear the word of God, mm-hmm. even though the doctrine may not be altogether kosher. You know, sometimes you have to make those concessions. And it's a tough spot to be in mm-hmm. uh, because then you're also intermingling with dicey doctrine as well. Mm-hmm. So you got, you, you got to also teach your kids and things like that. It's like, well, what they said about that wasn't really right, but what they said about this was was actually really good or, you know, Help your kids learn to discern. But yeah, sometimes people are stuck in those situations. You can't help it. Yeah. You can't you can't necessarily always have your choice. You can't always have free will in these things. <laughs> Ooh, see what I did there? Alright. Um sorry, bad joke. Anyways, so how about this? Let's let's finish up our discussion here. Um about uh well actually you know what? Let me let me get to this that um it kind of leads into number seven, right? When we see Jesus on the cross, we see what we deserve. What does Jesus' suffering and death say about our sin? Let's just answer that first, and then I'll tell you what I was thinking. What does Jesus' suffering and death on the cross say about our sin? wrote, A, it's very bad, and B, it's propitiated. Yeah, okay, yeah. It's very bad. (laughs) That's putting it lightly, right? And it's propitiated. It's paid for. It is atoned for. It is redeemed. You know, it is redeemed or reconciled. Right? Those are all kind of synonymous there for what the cross does. The reason why you know you say it's bad, he he kind of gets into the depths of how bad it is. Right? That um, he was saying he has several stories in here about how like what was it they he was. Um, um, what is it that we don't really know how bad we are by ourselves? He used that story about that guy who was in the motorcycle accident and couldn't feel his legs because he broke his neck. So he did. So when they asked him, "Are you hurt?" He'd say, "I don't know. I can't feel my legs." You know. And I used this story this morning as well. A friend of mine was a firefighter and a paramedic, and and out in Sugarland, and um. He said, you know, he has all these stories. And one of his stories was that there was a guy who got so drunk that he ran into a parking structure 
in the in like the shopping center or whatever the town center that they were in, ran up in the parking garage and got and was running away from the cops. Got up to the second story of that thing and thinking that he would survive the jump to get away from the cops, he jumped from the second story, which is still really tall, and he broke both of his legs, right? Snapped his femurs, actually, uh, and therefore ruptured his femoral arteries. Um, and they said, uh, and you know, he's on the ground. No one can get near him because he's fighting everyone who comes near him because he's so drunk. He doesn't know how hurt he really is. And the paramedics and the firefighters just kind of walk up to him and say, hey, buddy, how's it going? And he's just cussing them out and fighting them. And he's like, don't come near me, that sort of thing. There's like, we need to put this IV in you, and then we need to get busy putting tourniquets on your legs. And he's cussing them out, cussing them out. And they simply just tell him, you have about less than a minute. Yeah, you have about less than a minute for us to do these things or else you will die. And then all of a sudden he shut up and put out his arm so they could put the IV in, you know. Religion. Yeah, he found God in that instance, if you want to say, yeah. I mean, they had to tell him what how serious it really was before he would actually understand, right? He didn't know. He was so far gone. And that's how we are, right? I mean, that is that is how bad we are. That by ourselves, we don't know. Apart from God's law, we can't know how bad we really are. But we have to be told by God himself. You know, in, in, in my um, prayer book, you know, we have the, that, I thought I talked about it before, the Weichtspiegel, the, the um, Weichtspiegel, the confessional mirror, that sometimes it's good for us to go down the list and say, have I kept the Ten Commandments? Let's start with the first one. And let's ask some questions about it. You know, have I uh, had other gods in my life? Have I... Um, feared, love, and trusted in God above all things? Let me ask the first question. Have you trusted in something other than God recently? I think we all have. Yeah, right? So you fail. You fail, right? First question, you've already failed. <laughs> you know, it's that bad. And the more questions you ask about that, the worse it gets, right? So that right there is personified in the death of Christ, right? God has nothing for sin but wrath, right? God has nothing for sin but wrath, and that wrath is meted out on Jesus Christ for you. So that when you see a crucifix, I mean, like, a, you know, the one that I have here is very uh, tame, compared to what it really was like, right? Some You can find some crucifixes. I think Roman Catholics have them, and you don't need to have these things because I think it gets a little graphic and really pushes it pretty far. But you'll find some crucifixes where Jesus is just all red because of the blood, right? Because of the scourging that happened. It's kind of like the Passion of the Christ, right? It, it's overwhelming how bad it really was. But these sorts of things like a crucifix are a reminder of the price that must be paid for your sin. And that's what he says, you know, at, like Jake said, it shows us how bad it is, but that it is propitiated, that the mystery of the cross is that your wickedness is revealed and forgiven 
simultaneously. Right? That in his mercy, God has not revealed the fullness of his wrath without also revealing the abundance of his grace. That's why we preach Christ crucified. That's why Paul says um, in uh, 1 Corinthians that I desire to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? I did not come with you, I, I, did, I did not come to you with lofty speech thinking that that was what was going to do it. What really does it is preaching Christ crucified for you, right? I'm going to take a breath now. Um, <laughs> Y'all have any thoughts, any comments before we close for tonight? I only went a little over an hour, but um, hopefully it was worthwhile. You're forgiven. I'm forgiven. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Thank you. Yeah, I'm forgiven. Any, any, um, Seriously, any thoughts, questions, comments? Something we didn't cover? No? I, I sure. wish that question seven had also mentioned the resurrection of Christ. Yes. Yes, of course. Was, that's an omission. Of course, yes. Um, and not only that, but the ascension as well, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Granted, the resurrection may not say anything directly about our sin, other than it proclaims our justification according to Scripture, but it always ir irks me when, when we hear of one and not the other. <laughs> right, right. And, of course, the name of our church is Resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot have the resurrection, although, like, they have to go hand in hand, of course, right? You cannot talk about the resurrection apart from the death of Christ, and you should not talk about the death of Christ apart from the resurrection. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, and, uh, yeah, forgive me for not talking about the resurrection. I had forgiven, though. I, I trust that for sure. All right. Um, so uh, that's it for Chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have any other thing, things to add, uh, I, I will end it there. Um, next week we have Chapter 4. Um, the one it's titled The One Who Is Always and Only For You. Looking forward to that one. Um, it's going to be good. So, um, what's that? Is that Lutheran sarcasm? <laughs> How do you mean? Is it sarcasm? It's always and only for you. Yeah, quote well, unquote. You can take that two ways, right? Yeah. How, how so? Well, Christ could be for me in a human centric way. Or he can oh, be for me as my advocate, which he is, according to Scripture. Okay. Well, we can get into more of that uh, next week. No, no, I, I wasn't trying to crack the chapter. I just saw no, it's a did. sarcastic title, and then I thought, oh, wait, it actually could be. It actually is. Yeah. It's not sarcastic. It's, it's for you. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's one of those things of, like, you know, you can, that's the other thing. You know, you, can't, you should not ever talk about the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ, or the resurrection of Christ, apart from the reason for it all which is that it is for you, right? It is, it's not something that's abstract and separate from our lives as Christians, right? So we'll talk about that more next week. Um, now, let's, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. 
Amen.